There are several things we don't know, but all the things that we do know are bad. Those were the sobering words of Chris Whitty today at a Downing Street press briefing. But have Britain's politicians caught up with the concern of their scientific advisors? We'll talk you through the latest data and the latest politics of Omicron. And I'm joined all evening by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, our audience will know last week you had coronavirus. Are you are you fully recovered? Are you out of quarantine? Yep, I am free to reign terror on the streets of the UK um, in my in my classic fashion. Yeah, no, I'm I'm all good. Uh, luckily, don't have any kind of long COVID symptoms. Touch wood. Although I feel like everyone's dropping like flies at the moment. You know, like really stay in your house, honestly, because it's it's. I feel like everyone I know has got it. I don't know about you, Michael. Well, half the people I know are staying in their houses, not because they're worried about catching it, but because they've already caught it. Going through Instagram stories, it's just, oh, positive test, positive test, positive test. Everyone's got the same picture of their their positive lateral flow test. We're talking about COVID all evening tonight, different angles, um, but it is the one story in town. Let's get started. Anecdotally, I have never known more people to be coming down with coronavirus. I imagine... Lots of you guys are feeling the same, especially if you're in London. And that feeling that you're having, it is backed up in the data. A record-breaking 78,610 new COVID cases were reported in the last 24 hours. This was the chart released today by COBRA. That's the government's emergency committee. The seven-day average is now 57,000, but it's that final blue bar that really matters. It's almost 20,000 higher than the day before and 10,000 more than the previous peak of cases in January. Chris Whitty today said the record figures are a sign the UK is suffering from two epidemics, one of Delta and one of Omicron. This chart of the breakdown in London demonstrates that point well. It's from Theo Sanderen at the Crick Institute. And it shows the proportion of people testing positive for Delta and Omicron over time in London. You can see how quickly those Omicron cases rose and become dominant. The last data point on this chart is tests taken or swabs taken on the 11th of December. So that's four days ago. Sajid Javid today said Omicron now makes up 60% of cases in London. Quite scary stats. Jenny Harris leads Britain's Health Security Agency. This is how she described the threat this morning. Probably the most significant threat we've had since the start of the pandemic. Um, And I'm sure, for example, that the numbers that we see on data over the next few days will be quite staggering compared to uh, the rate of growth that we've seen in cases for previous variants. The real potential risk here, and I would underline that because we are still learning a lot about the variant, is in relation to its uh, severity, clinical severity, and therefore whether those cases turn into uh, severe disease, hospitalizations and deaths. And we are still at too early a stage for that. In fact, the world probably is still at too early a stage to be clear. The difficulty is that the uh, the growth of this virus so it has a doubling time, doubling days at the moment, which is shortening, i.e. it's doubling faster, growing faster, mm-hmm. and in most regions in the UK is now under two days. Uh, when it started, we were estimating about four or five. So if you think of uh, that growth rate right across the UK, and we're starting to see it and feel it now in London particularly, uh, but yesterday uh, particularly around Manchester, Um, And we're very sure there are levels growing across 
uh, most communities in the UK now, although there is quite a lot of regional variation still. A doubling time of less than two days. That is that is pretty scary. And given Sajid Javid said 200,000 people may have been infected by Omicron on Monday, that would mean 400,000 people were actually infected today and well over a million daily new cases would be arriving by the weekend. Now, it's of course possible, this is all too simplistic, the 200,000 figure used by Javid was based on modelling, not actual testing, and the doubling time could increase, so the spread of this virus could slow down if people significantly change their behaviour. And that already seems to be happening. I assume everyone watching this can attest to that, that people are going out a lot less now because so many of them are in isolation as well. But everyone does seem to agree we are about to see a wave of COVID cases much, much bigger than any we've seen before. Of course, the big unknown is how this will affect the NHS, how it will feed into hospitalizations. On that front, on Radio 4 this morning, Graham Medley, he chairs the SPY-M modelling group on SAGE, said this. That's, that's the million dollar question, I think, at the moment, is, is um, how that's going to work out. Most of the infections at the moment are in young adults. So these are people who are far less likely uh, to need hospital treatment in any case. But in the past, with previous uh, waves, we've seen that move out into older um, and more vulnerable generations. Um, and of course, that there's no reason to suspect that that won't happen uh, during this wave. Uh, and then the numbers of people who end up in hospital is some combination of, of when people get infected, their vaccination status, as well as what Omicron is actually doing, what the variant is doing. So could these numbers see hospitals overwhelmed? I think that that is a very real possibility that if if the numbers in, of infections increasing continues in the way that it has done um, and it spills out into older age groups, then we could see numbers of people being admitted to hospital um, getting very large. None of that sounds very good. And in an attempt to slow the spread of Omicron, Nicholas Sturgeon yesterday asked people in Scotland to limit socialising to free households at a time in the run-up to Christmas. This was advice, not a legal requirement. Boris Johnson today gave his own press conference, but he refused to follow the lead of Nicola Sturgeon. This is how he responded to a question from Laura Koonsberg as to whether rising cases mean boosters and plan B will cease to be enough. This is the right approach to take, the right mixture uh, to, to, of approaches that, to do these two things at once. And uh, the progress that we're making with the booster is absolutely vital. These numbers are extraordinary uh, for the British population. I mean, we, we really are boosting a huge numbers of people now. Uh, we've got a much higher proportion of our population boosters, as I said at the outset, either than uh, the United States or than the rest of, uh, of Europe. Uh, I think over 90% of the 75 to 79-year-olds uh, have been boosted now. And that's terrific because it it's those groups, don't forget, that uh, sadly provide the the bulk of the uh, of those who are likely to 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 die uh, from covid so by getting boosted now uh, we can really build up our wall of protection whilst we slow down uh, the spread of the of the disease with plan b so it's a it's a two-pronged uh, a two-pronged effort that was the pm sticking to his original script chris witty though took a different tone this is how he responded when asked whether england was doing enough about omicron I think that what most people are doing is, and I would 
think this seems very sensible, is prioritizing the social interactions they, that really matter to them and to protect those ones, deprioritizing ones that matter much less to them. And I think that's going to become increasingly important as we, for example, go into the Christmas period. And people are also taking a lot of precautions, and I think this is exactly right, so that, for example, uh, if uh, they're going to visit a group of people or if they're visiting vulnerable people, they're taking tests beforehand, I would strongly encourage that and strongly encourage sensible things like really good ventilation, meeting outdoors if that's appropriate and easy, uh, and all the things we know that we've done uh, systematically through this. So I just think a lot of this is people following sensible rules, but prioritising the things that really matter to them and deprioritising the others. That was Chris Whitty advising people to limit unnecessary social contacts. And the Chief Medical Officer is clearly very worried about what might happen next in the UK. That's in part because he's not convinced by reports from South Africa suggesting Omicron might be milder than previous variants. There has been a certain amount of uh, commentary about the fact that um, doctors and scientists from South Africa, and I really want to pay huge tribute to South African science and medicine, what they've done so quickly has been remarkable, uh, have uh, indicated that there may be some reduction uh, in the hospitalisation rates they're seeing uh, with Omicron. And I want to put a really serious caution on this because I think it has been overinterpreted. The first caution on this is simply a numerical one. If the rate of hospitalisation were to halve, but you're doubling every two days, in two days you're back to where you were before you actually had the hospitalisation. If the peak of this is twice as great, then halving of the, uh, the hospitalisation rate, you still end up in the same place. And this peak is going very fast. But the second point I wanted to make, which I'm not sure has fully been uh, absorbed by everybody, um, is that the amount of immunity in South Africa for this wave because of a prior Delta wave in vaccination is far higher than it was for their last wave. And therefore, the fact that there is a lower hospitalisation rate is unsurprising. That was Chris Whitty warning that improved hospitalisation rates in South Africa don't necessarily mean Omicron is milder. Now, now you might watch that and think, so what? He's saying that they have population immunity in, in South Africa. We also have that here. So will this wave not also be milder for us? I think that's an important argument. I, I, this wave will be milder in the sense that every person who gets infected will be less likely to go to hospital. But he's saying that if everyone gets infected at the same time, you could still overwhelm hospitals. And we know we had loads of antibodies in the population when Delta came along and Delta still hospitalized you know, quite a lot of people. So, so we would expect Omicron to do the same. As I say, lots of uncertainty, but it's plausible that Omicron does the same. Dahlia, what is your verdict on the current state of play? Do you think Boris Johnson should follow Nicholas Sturgeon's lead and start to advise people to, to limit their contacts or even go further and, and ban people from, from gathering in large groups? It probably comes as a surprise to no one that, yes, I, I do think that Johnson should at least be following in Sturgeon's lead. But also I think that what we've learned from COVID so far is that it's not necessarily about the severity of measures, you know, or about going further, but it's, that's not necessarily the key decider of what happens, but actually it's much more about timing and messaging and, and leadership. And those are the things that are really missing here. For example, you know, I'm, I'm not a public health expert. I don't know, but once it became clear that, you know, Omicron's on the scene, we know how transmissible it is. We know we have Christmas coming up. 
that could have been a time to do, you know, a short circuit breaker lockdown so that, you know, the rate could be slowed before Christmas, making the sort of inevitable household mixing that is going to happen over Christmas uh, less risky. And it goes without saying that the timing of reintroducing masks, the mask mandate was was an absolute disaster, primarily because it was never the right time to drop the mask mandate to begin with. We shouldn't have to wait until a vaccine resistant variant is, you know, ravaging through the population to start processing the reintroduction of masks. It takes time to embed that back into people's everyday behavior. And it's a bit too late now. It makes complete sense for Sturgeon to introduce these kinds of measures now um, around restrictions around Christmas and limiting how many households can mix. It seems quite reasonable. But once again, in, in England, it looks like we're heading into the same kind of unpredictable, chaotic and ultimately very risky few weeks and possibly even a few months over the festive period because what I predict we might see is sort of white knuckling it until the end of Christmas and then with an overwhelmed NHS having restrictive lockdown over January with all the mental and physical health impacts that we know that that carries all because of poor timing, messaging and leadership. And so at this point, you know, I was at, um, I was like going for a walk with someone recently in the, in the park near me. And I was just telling them at this point, it's not even the virus's fault as in the virus is behaving in an entirely predictable way. You know, it, it said, this is what I'm going to do. And it did it. Like it, it was entirely predictable that winter would bring with it a surge of cases including more severe cases, because people are spending more time indoors, we have flu season, the vaccines are starting to wane, and we're kind of transitioning to people taking boosters. And a vaccine-resistant variant emerging was, again, hardly unpredictable. It's kind of what scientists have been telling us is likely to happen anyway. And it's much more likely to happen when you have vast swathes of the world not vaccinated. So the reason that we feel this, I don't know, I'm sure you feel it as well, Michael, like this kind of horrible instability, unpredictability, the sense of not knowing what the next few weeks are going to look like, but feeling a kind of impending sense of doom, that, that feeling of unpredictability and instability is not because the virus is necessarily behaving in completely unprecedented ways, even with the variant. It's because the government is not having its priorities straight, is not fit to lead, and is not learning the lessons from the last winter. We've already done this once before. And it's incredibly frustrating for decisions around Christmas to be being made by individuals who don't feel like they have a full amount of information, when really the leadership should be coming from the government to give us clear guidance so that we're all doing this together. Because this, this only action only works if it's collective. And we're lacking the leadership to really inspire that kind of collective action. And so, you know, I think, like I said, I think we're going to white knuckle it through Christmas. I think a lot of us are going to feel pretty anxious about who we spend Christmas with. And I predict a pretty grim January again. I mean, that predictability issue is interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I, I don't think any of us would claim, you know, we saw Omicron coming from a mile off. No, no one was yeah, able to no. say, oh, I've got a 90% chance. Yeah. But there were enough public health experts saying there is a non-insignificant chance that a variant could come along 
with these qualities and and you'd have thought that they should have been preparing for that even if you know it, it was you might have prepared for something like omicron and then not have had to implement it and we'd say oh great we, we don't have to do these extra measures but you'd have thought they would have some plans in place for when what was yeah. always a, also, a, a plausible development happened one measure would be not ever dropping the mask mandate because that way, when a sort of what is not an unlikely scenario happens and a new variant comes along that requires these kind of measures more than ever, we're not in this awkward transition phase where people have been used to not wearing masks for several months on end. And now we're having to get the message out there that, no, you need to wear masks again. And when it comes to the Omicron variant in particular, we're learning that every day counts. Every day matters. So... This is what we mean by lack of preparedness and lack of leadership. It's about, you know, waiting for the crisis to hit before you start thinking about crisis management and mitigation. I mean, as you say, it's not just about restrictions, yes or no. There are lots of other policy questions that come into this. So let's take you through some of them. We'll start with the good news, which is that the booster campaign does seem to be going quite well. 656,000 boosters were done on Tuesday, which is well up on the Tuesday prior, almost double the amount which were done on the previous Tuesday. And it's still not the million that we need to get everyone vaccinated by New Year, but you can see the trajectory is going in the right direction. And this was also, and this is significant, I think, while there was still a 15-minute wait required after you got a booster vaccine. If you've got one already, you know you have to sit in that room for 15 minutes. That's been dropped today. And there are, you know, I've heard from GPs and other people at vaccination centres that said that could really increase the amount of people they can vaccinate. So if we're already doing 650,000 people, I think we could see those numbers go up significantly over the next few days. On a more disappointing front, there are lots of basic support measures that the government is not pursuing. So the first is on shielding. Here I want to show you a tweet thread by Frances Ryan. She's a journalist at The Guardian. So she tweeted, With the rapid advance of Omicron through the population, this is the time to bring back the shielding programme and financial and legal support too. Disabled people this winter need the right to work from home and wages if they can't, a benefit uplift and help getting meds, medicine and food. Currently, we've got shielding without a shielding program. One in four clinically extremely vulnerable people were still shielding as of autumn. Logic says that's increasing, but the government stopped support months ago. Ministers are singing la 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 while disabled people stay indoors alone. There are many people who can't face shielding again and can decide, based on personal circumstance and health, how to balance risk. Others, through extreme vulnerability, will need to stay indoors. The point is to have genuine choice free from financial and legal constraint. Now, I think that's such an incredibly important point, right? Because while there are different policies the government could be pursuing to, to you know, slow the spread of Omicron, to, to, to flatten that sombrero that they aren't taking, I don't think there is a policy measure that they could take over the next two weeks, which would mean that there aren't hundreds of thousands of cases of Omicron every day. And that means that there are some people who, even though you know they've got the vaccines they're they're entitled to, are quite rationally going to decide they don't want to go out for the next couple of months. And we need to, as a society, make sure that people who have made that decision, we do everything in our power to make that as tolerable as possible. And what it seems to have happened instead is the government have said, "Look, yeah, that shielding thing actually was quite difficult for people spending all that time in their homes." Um, we don't want to encourage them to do that because it has other costs. So we're just going to forget about shielding, which is the, the precise opposite thing to do. If you think that the shielding program in the first wave of the pandemic had negative consequences, well, 
One, you could try and make circulation so low that people don't need to shield. That would have been ideal. With Omicron, very, very hard. So then you say, well, it's going to be up to people's choice whether or not they shield. But if they do want to, we are going to provide people enough support so that that is a tolerable, manageable thing to do. What the government have said is, oh, you, you, might, you might feel depressed if you shield, so we're going to force you to go to work. Which is the opposite of, of compassionate public health policy. And I think really, really disappointing that more hasn't been said about that. The second gap in policy is something we talk about a lot. Sick pay. Two years into this pandemic, there have been no real improvements to sick pay. And as this new statesman graphic shows, the UK still has rates of sick pay, which are way below our peers in Europe. Um, this, this, of course, matters for people who take time off work because they'll have to not just endure, for example, COVID-19, but also have to take a big cut to their income. It also matters to all of us because without sick pay, people are going to go into work even if they are sick or not get tested if they have symptoms because they can't afford to fall sick. So not having sorted this out two years into the pandemic, unforgivable. Finally, and I think this will become a big political issue over the next couple of days, we are yet to hear anything on financial support for workers and businesses. Tom Kerridge is a celebrity chef with a number of restaurants in Britain. He tweeted, here we are. This is the list of cancellations taken in one of our restaurants in the past six days. 654 guests. I understand why public health is the most important thing. But what will the government do to support the industry? Many places will crumble without help. Now, why I say I think this is going to be a massive issue over the next couple of days is because you you have now had, you know, the government are resisting telling people to cancel their plans. I think partly because they, they don't want to provide this financial support. But you had Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer today, as we showed you, telling people, don't go out unless you feel like you really need to. Only go to those social events which you think are unnecessary. And if you've got a government representative saying that, then you are going to have to provide some support to restaurants and pubs and all the people who, who whose livelihoods rely on people going out. You can't tell people don't buy from these shops and then not provide any support to those well, shops or businesses or whatever. I, I, and I think that that is going to become abundantly clear over the next couple of days. Whether or not Rishi Sunak can hold out and say, no, no, money's too tight. I'm not going to support anyone. The virus is an act of God and people will just have to lose all of this income. There's nothing I can do about it. That, that seems to be the position he wants to take, whether he'll get pressured into actually supporting people. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Dahlia, what do you think about this? You know, the government clearly don't want to do it. The government don't want to provide support for shielders. They don't want to provide support for the hospitality sector. And they don't want to provide extra sick pay. I'm, I'm pretty sure they won't provide extra sick pay. But the other two, they potentially could be forced into doing. What, what do you think? I mean, I think it's a difficult one. And I think this is the frustration that so many of us have is that we are spending a lot of time talking about things that are perhaps much more controversial, things like vaccine passports, when we aren't getting the low-hanging fruit stuff out of the way. The measures that are not particularly controversial amongst the vast majority of people other than business owners or particular people who with financial interests against people working from home. This is where the frustration comes from, is that we are not taking this low-hanging fruit of things like offering sick pay, furlough, as I said, it, say every single show, mask mandate, etc. And that leaves us in a position where we're then forced to talk about and consider these really high stakes, these high stakes and very divisive measures. And so I think the working from home and the furlough 
is going to be the furlough in particular is going to be particularly difficult because it runs contrary to so much of the Tory ideology, which is that the idea of workers being paid to not work is like goes against the very, it, it's more disgusting to them than hundreds and thousands of cases of Omicron. I think in terms of the support for bars and restaurants, I this is where, you know, the whole Tory friendly to big business or whatever, obviously that is true, but it's almost like when they do things like this, it's just like, very, very bizarre because it's like surely the restaurant and hospitality lobby will be absolutely begging the government to either make it clear that it's safe for people to go and eat and drink in restaurants and bars, which it clearly isn't. So that's not what they should do or to help provide them with support so that they don't have to, for example, fire their workers and be hemorrhaging money in the way that they they are. So I think that that, that Tory ideology of not believing in paying people to do something other than working, even if that is going to save lives and even if, even if that's going to help the economy in the long run, we are still going to see that ideology push through and prevent us from taking the steps that we need in order to prevent another really grim winter. Nick Figgis on Twitter says, is the Omicron variant an argument for ending vaccine patents beside the obvious moral argument? With patents in place, do we leave the world open to more variants in future than would develop if poorer countries were able to vaccinate? Yes. The answer is yes <laughs> to that question. We we absolutely um, should have taken the patents off ages ago. And we should, what we should be having then is what you'll see that Pfizer will say, oh, well, then we won't be investing in um, vaccines for new variants or vaccines or sort of universal vaccines against all types of coronavirus, which will work against all variants. The answer that's kind of you're not you're not doing that at the moment, right? What we should have is 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 public priority saying let's invest loads and loads into a universal vaccine because that's not necessarily going to be in Pfizer's interest to make this idea that you keep having to boost people that you keep having to do these little tweaks to the vaccines. That's an amazing business model. If you found the vaccine that cured all coronaviruses, I'm not sure Pfizer would want that. This is just a discussion of incentives. I don't. You know, I don't have evidence that they are trying to block the emergence of that. But this is, I think, an, an obvious problem with leaving it all to the private big pharma companies. Boris Johnson has suffered the biggest rebellion of Conservative MPs during his time as Prime Minister. 100 Tory MPs, that's nearly one third of the Parliamentary Party, refused to back the government's plan to introduce vaccine passports. The law makes it compulsory to present proof of double vaccination or a recent negative lateral flow test in order to go into nightclubs and other large venues. These new rules only passed because they received support from opposition MPs. A revolt had been expected against the plan, but not one this big. Most insiders had guessed around 70 Tory MPs would rebel. And the extent of the revolt is a personal blow to Boris Johnson. He'd spent the afternoon trying to convince backbench Tories to support his new rules. In this clip, you'll hear from Sir Geoffrey Clifton Brown, a member of the influential 1922 committee that speaks for backbench Tories. He wasn't shy about the trouble Johnson now finds himself in. This goes on. We've had a very bad month in the last month. I think some members of the party will be thinking to themselves, we've got to have a change. But we're not there yet. And I'm still with him. I'm still backing him. But he's got to change. On Radio 4 this morning, Mark Harper called for Johnson to behave more democratically going forward. 
Instead of the Prime Minister making a late-night address on Sunday and scaring many people witless, a better thing to do would have been to come to the House of Commons on Monday to set out in detail the advice that he's received, the, the things that he thinks needs to happen as a result, and allow members of Parliament to, answer quest to ask questions and then for him to answer them. And so what I'm calling for is for him to change how he operates um, so that Parliament is properly involved. We have a proper debate in this country about how we're going to deal with this virus. I'm not pretending these decisions are easy. It's because they're difficult. They need to be done openly in Parliament, transparently, with members of Parliament able to ask questions on behalf of our constituents so we can get this right on behalf of all the people that elect us. A number of the rebel MPs were the usual suspects who, who opposed all COVID restrictions, but the opposition to COVID passports was much broader. Mark Harper again. The final thing I'd say on vaccine passports is they're very limited at the moment about what's proposed, but that was true everywhere they were introduced around the world. Uh, everywhere they've been introduced, they've been extended in terms of the venues they apply to. Uh, and we've seen that in Wales where Labour are in power. So anyone who thinks that they're going to stick to what's currently on the order paper, uh, I'm afraid are kidding themselves. That was Mark Carper suggesting vaccine passports represent mission creep. It's an argument that saw the Lib Dems and Jeremy Corbyn join Tory rebels in voting against COVID passes. Dahlia, I know we've disagreed on, on vaccine passports before, but what do you think of the politics of, of the rebellion yesterday? Was this a principled stand by Tory backbenchers or did they just want to give Boris Johnson a bloody nose? Clearly, Tory backbenchers, who are kind of Boris Johnson's base in many ways, in, or a key part of his base in, in the Tory party, have decided that his time is up. The backlash against the Christmas party told us that. It's not the idea that that kind of crossed some uncrossable line is farcical, you know, that he's done much worse. So the timing of it is tells us that they've been sitting on it for a little while and this is the time that they're deciding to kind of come that, you know, they're orchestrating his end, essentially. Uh, and vaccine passports have turned out to be a decent wedge issue because on the one hand, restaurant and hospitality industries, I'm just guessing, I'm not sure about this, but they might be leaning a little bit on Boris to introduce vaccine passports. Because as it is now, where people are nervous to dine indoors, it might make people, there's evidence from Europe to suggest that vaccine passports do encourage people to dine indoors and to to, they feel more comfortable indoors and also because it's I guess they might be less likely to shut down if there are vaccine passports in place or it might delay whether or not they get shut down but as is often the case with Tory backbenchers and the issue of civil liberties is that it's entirely hypocritical and I say this as you mentioned as someone who who doesn't I don't think vaccine passports are a good idea if this was a vote of yes or no I would probably vote no to vaccine passports but it's so hypocritical because the conservative government this conservative government have probably been one of the worst governments in recent history when it comes to violation of civil liberties and and very, very crucial and important civil liberties, whether it's the policing bill that significantly curbs our ability to protest freely, or whether it's the fact that six million people in this country, primarily from ethnic minority backgrounds, are now looking at the fact that their citizenship could be revoked without warning, even if it makes them stateless. Those are serious, grave, worrying violations of civil liberties, which could have immense consequences. 
And yet we heard very little from the Tory backbench about those problems, about those violations of civil, liberty, civil liberties. And the irony here of the very party that orchestrated and implemented the hostile environment in this country could say, oh, no, we shouldn't have vaccine passports because this isn't a papers, please country. This absolutely is a papers, please country. Ask any non-citizen who tries to get health care or a job or, or housing. So while I, yes, agree that vaccine passports are worrying in terms of the presence bleed that they can have and the inequality implications that they can have, the difference is I'm consistent. I actually care about civil liberties across the board. I don't just care about civil liberties as they impact citizened white men. I care about the civil liberties of people that don't look like me. I care about the infringement of civil liberties, even if it doesn't affect me. That's the point of defending them. So as I said, even though in this binary of pro or anti-vaccine passports, I still sit on the side of anti-vaccine passports, it's not a happy coalition with these backbenchers. Uh, it's not a coalition that in the long run is going to actually protect the UK from the assault of civil liberties that we are seeing, which is not really coming through vaccine passports. It's much more coming through crime and anti-migrant legislation. That's where we're really seeing threats to civil liberties in this country. And this isn't the coalition that's going to fight that. So yeah, I think that we're right to be frustrated to see them using this because it's so hypocritical, even though if I was in this vote, I would be voting with them probably. Now, I think there are a couple of Tories who are relatively consistent on this, people like David Davis, but obviously this, this 100 Tory MP rebellion, there was no 100 Tory MP rebellion on, on the, the police and crime bill or on the borders bill. So you're absolutely right. This is incredibly inconsistent. I was just to very briefly put forward where my position on vaccine passports, at this point, I'm not actually sure how effective they're going to be, especially if you just accept people who are double vaccinated because they can transmit Omicron almost as easily as anyone else. The equality thing, I think, also what comes into this on the other side of the ledger is the the rights of people who are clinically extremely vulnerable to to enter social venues. So, so if, if if venues can be made more accessible by using them, then I think some of the the very valid arguments against vaccine passports could be overridden. But we, we've had this conversation many times before. So let's focus on the politics of all of this. Labour have tried to exploit the rebellions on the Tory backbenches. This was Keir Starmer at PMQs. Mr Speaker, the virus is spreading once again and lives and livelihoods are at risk. The British public are looking for a Prime Minister with the trust and the authority to lead Britain through the crisis. Instead, we're burdened with the worst possible Prime Minister at the worst possible time. They're shouting now. Where were they in the lobby last night? His own MPs have had enough. They won't defend him, they won't turn up to support him, and if he proposes them, they won't vote for basic public health measures. So at this time of national effort, the Labour Party stood up, shown the leadership that the Prime Minister can't, and put the health and security of the British people first. We can't go on with a Prime Minister who's too weak to lead. So will the Prime Minister take time this Christmas to look in the mirror and ask himself whether he has the trust and authority to lead this country? Mr Speaker, uh, thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Let, 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 we, we won that uh, vote last night with Conservative votes, as I, as I told the House. Uh, I, I, 
respect I respect the feelings and the, I respect the anxieties uh, that colleagues have about of course I do I respect and understand the anxieties the legitimate anxieties that colleagues have about uh, restrictions on their liberty but I believe uh, and on the liberty of, the, of people but I believe that the approach that we're taking is balanced and proportionate and right for this country so the confusion over whether or not labor votes were needed to pass Plan B legislation was because if Labour had, had abstained, the bill would also have passed. If Labour had rebelled, it would have fallen. Keir Starmer, though, is right. Um, he has a decent point that there is more support for Boris Johnson's measures on the Labour backbenches than there is on the Tory ones. Dahlia, um, I, want, I want to bring you in here because... <laughs> Some people are saying this is going to be, you know, fatal for Boris Johnson. I think he's not going to lose his job now because no one wants to take over at the beginning of an Omicron wave. He's got at least six months in that position. So while I think this represents that, yeah, lots of Tory MPs have at the moment, they're feeling very negative towards him. If he had an amazing six months and suddenly the public decided they liked him in six months time, I think it's unlikely all the Tories would suddenly change their mind and be like, oh yeah, Boris Johnson, he's the one to take us to the next general election. For me, the more significant thing here is... Does this rebellion mean that Boris Johnson, if new measures are needed, will now refuse to to try and implement them because he doesn't want the embarrassment of another Tory rebellion? Does, does it mean that if the NHS is getting close to collapse, more measures will, will be impossible? But as you kind of hinted, the question is whether he makes it in time for another rebellion. Uh, we don't know when their their next one might might be. But I think I think the worry is yes obviously, that he will avoid it for some time, because obviously, even though he has tried in the past, he can't avoid it forever. At some point, it gets to a, a, a level where you actually can't continue to put off a lockdown. And, and so, it, and that's not impossible that we are in the situation where that might have to happen. And so what we will have is a lockdown that will be much longer and more severe than it would have been if it had happened a few weeks earlier than whenever it does may or may not happen. So what we'll have, and this is what worries me, is the worst of both worlds scenario that has basically defined the UK's approach to COVID. And that is both having to have deeply restrictive, long periods in horrible lockdowns that mean that stop kids from going to school that you know harm people's mental health that delay people's medical you know routine medical care whilst also having really high death rates or you know hospitalization rates uh and you know a tanked economy so kind of the 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 venn diagram of all the things that could go wrong us being like right in the middle of it even though we are told that you know either the choice is public health or the economy. Well, this approach manages to tank both of them. So it's that sabotaging of very, very precious time in what is an incredibly time-sensitive, dynamic situation. That is the most incriminating and threatening thing that the Tory backbench represents. That's the thing that that's really the the crime of the Tory backbench over the past, you know, two years, year and a half that we've been in this situation. It's that that robbing us of time that we can't get back. And, and that's what worries me uh, when I see Boris Johnson getting shaken up by the, the backbench rebellion now. And the fact that they are willing to play cards that they weren't willing to play before.
I absolutely agree with you. And I mean, we're not saying lockdown now or we'll have to have a, a longer one later. It's just that it, it's a bit worrying if the Prime Minister is not in a position where he can take whatever actions might be necessary because he's worried some there are a bunch of right-wing nutters on his backbenches who are going to oppose even sort of reasonable action. So I don't think let's have a lockdown now, but it is worrying if you've got a prime minister who's who's unable to bring about more severe restrictions. And we, at some point, it's, it's quite likely we're going to need some at least. Let's go to comments. Daniel Goff with a fiver. Boosters, yes. Vaccine passports, no. Once you make it easy for capital to influence public opinion, then they will turn vaccine passports into ID cards before you know it. It's an interesting point. I'm not sure how much capital capitalists care about vaccine passports in a way i feel like they probably sit on the fence with it as i've said before i i'm not the argument i think is is strong when it comes to vaccine passports is undocumented people it creates an added barrier for you know participation in certain aspects of life as i say i think you know if they work open question you can say the same thing about the absence of them for people who are clinically extremely vulnerable but this idea that it's going to be this sort of data mining exercise it's not really how the NHS app works, and it already exists. But as I said, we've, we've discussed that a lot. There are strong arguments for and against vaccine passports and mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers. Reasonable people can disagree. But a debate in the Commons on the measures also brought some pretty unreasonable Tories out of the woodwork. This was the intervention from Desmond Swain. We decide what our risk appetite is and what we're prepared to encounter and what we're prepared to not. Notwithstanding the carnage on our roads, certainly killing more people than COVID at the moment, some of us still decide to drive. It's a matter of opinion. So it comes down to letting loose the dogs of war. Get the fear factor into it. Get the members of the officials, the members of SAGE, the members of Independent SAGE, of SPY-M, all those, of course, speaking in their own private capacity, get them out there twisting the fear lever. What about the, um, in the, the uh, Health Protection Agency? What, what Stalinist minds thought up that nomenclature? Get them out there twisting the fear button and by and large, you will get the reaction that you want. People will crave more enforcement and more fiercer measures to protect them from this great danger that is out there. I mean, I hope Desmond Swain doesn't have COVID-19 because you could almost see that the aerosols are sort of flying out of his mouth all, all across the room. He speaks with such um, drama. Anyway, Stalinist nomenclature. So the, the content of what he was saying also completely bizarre, completely ridiculous. And as Byline Times' Adam Bienkov pointed out yesterday, it was also pretty misleading. Wrong, in fact. Uh, Adam Bienkov tweeted, Conservative MP Desmond Swain says the carnage on UK roads is certainly killing more people than COVID at the moment. And for context, there were just 1,460 deaths on British roads in the whole of 2020, compared to more than 4,000 deaths of people with COVID last month alone, which sort of puts into into context, his his comments about facts and opinion. This is all opinion. Well, that was facts. The, the facts are that more people have died of COVID in a month than died on Britain's roads in a year. It's interesting, though. I always find this interesting, how many people on the right have this idea that all public health experts are desperately gagging for, for lockdowns. And that's because it kind of goes against what we've seen over the past 
Yeah, we know that at the start of this pandemic, they resisted lockdowns for ages, too long, in fact. And Chris Whitty is always talking about balancing the pros and cons of, of intervention. He doesn't strike me as someone who is obsessed with lockdowns. He actually seems like he's got quite a balanced perspective on these things. Dahlia, where do you think this, this conspiratorial idea about scientists just wanting to, to control us comes from? Because I don't really see it borne out in, in terms of the scientists who are most influential in this country. No, absolutely. And the thing about how the like scientists and public health has been pitted as a sort of pro-lockdown force is ridiculous, as we just talked about in the previous segment. If we're in a situation where it's clear that at some point some kind of lockdown is going to happen because, for example, we have a variant that is incredibly transmissible, what we want to do is make it as short and as unrestrictive as possible. Because lockdowns are awful and no one wants to be in them. No one wants to repeat what happened last year where we were all stuck in our houses for two months or six weeks or whatever. That's awful. If we're going to have to do it, we want it to be short, as it, not invasive as possible, where we can still, you know, maybe mix with one other household or have, you know, some kind of mobility, some kind of freedom still. And by having it at the right time, we prevent those really horrible ones further down the road. But in terms of the uh, that where do we where does this conspiratorial idea about scientists come from? I think it's not so much about what people are hearing from the mouths of scientists necessarily. I think it's a general relationship to what people perceive as the establishment. Uh, you know, I think it comes from because I, I while I think you know the conspiratorial stuff obviously. In, ter in terms of mainstream politics, we do hear it more from the right than we do from the left. But I do think that there are a lot of people who might be inclined to towards these conspiracy theories who might not necessarily identify politically one way or the other. Uh, and I think that comes from a fracturing of what people are being told, particularly by their government, what people are being told is their reality and what people are experiencing on the ground as their reality. That fracture is kind of the gap through which a lot of dangerous conspiracy theories emerge. And, you know, I don't, because I don't blame people for finding it weird that like some forms of medical treatment seem to take ages to develop and become accessible or never become accessible. And yet this vaccine was developed and distributed so quickly. I don't blame people for finding it weird that at certain points last year we were being told you can't mix indoors or go and visit your mom or visit your dad or visit your your relatives or friends, but you can, you have to go to work and go on public transport. Obviously, you know, you and I have an explanation for those things that are grounded in reality. Things like the layers of bureaucracy and profiteering that tend to slow down the accessibility and distribution of healthcare. Things like the fact that our government sees us not being able to see our loved ones as kind of disposable, but us going into the office every day is something that, you know, is a last resort. They care much more about that than they do about us being able to spend time with our loved ones. But that gap without those explanations, I think it becomes a kind of breeding ground for a lot of really dangerous thinking. You know, I think the same way about climate skepticism and, and the whole emergence of skepticism about, about climate change on the one hand, of course, we believe what it, it's clear the evidence is, is unequivocal. But on the other hand, you can't blame people for finding it strange that they're being told to recycle or they're being told to buy better light bulbs 
while the government is still commissioning new coal mines. Like, it's not an unreasonable question. And the problem is that when you don't have analysis and theories and, and a way of explaining to people in a way that's grounded in reality what happens, it leaves open the door for conspiracy theories and going off the deep end in a way that becomes really, really hard to reverse and has really detrimental consequences, as we've seen both in the case of climate change, but also in the case of, of coronavirus as well. I think in particular with Desmond Swain, I just think it, it displays, and, and lots of people like him, so Dan Wooten on GB News is exactly the same. It displays just a real unseriousness about following what scientists are actually saying. Because sometimes I do, I do listen to some scientists and I think, to be honest, I think you're being a bit too trigger happy about restrictions. For example, I think at this point in time when we have vaccines, zero COVID to me seems like it, it would involve more restrictions than, than are worth it, given what the vaccines have, have enabled us to do to lower the risks of this disease. But that's not the mainstream position within sort of the scientific community, and especially not the scientific community who are advising the government. Desmond Swain is arguing against policies which are written up by a government that's actually incredibly resistant to, to restrictions. And, and Desmond Swain, this idea that just sort of like, all scientists want to control us, so therefore let's just pick numbers out of the air and suggest that there are more people dying in cars than are currently dying of COVID. It's just like, you've been elected to, to quite an important body you're getting paid 60 grand a year, like do some research before you make a speech in there, you know, and maybe think seriously about an issue before you use your, your vote. Because you could make a serious libertarian argument against lockdowns. I, I tend to not find them particularly persuasive, but, but Desmond Swain and, you know, his coterie of, of, of right-wing nutjobs, essentially, at the, on the backbench of the Tories, they are not capable of making them. I'm, I'm sick of hearing from them, to be honest. Although the way he speaks is, is quite entertaining. If you like a pantomime at Christmas. Let's go from a debate about liberty to a man caught taking liberties. After the scandal of the Downing Street quiz, another photo has emerged of Tories partying last Christmas despite COVID restrictions. And this time it has claimed a resignation. Failed Tory London mayoral candidate Sean Bailey has quit his role on the London Assembly. This is the image he was spotted in. It was published by The Mirror and it was taken on the 14th of December last year. It shows Sean Bailey standing in the centre of the photo. Back then, London was under tier two restrictions, which meant no household mixing. But Sean Bailey was busy mixing it up with 22 staffers all crammed together for a catered party with wine and a buffet. It was at the Westminster HQ of the Tory party. Also in attendance was billionaire Tory donor and alleged tax haven aficionado Nick Candy. That's Candy on Bailey's right in the grey jacket. Six days after flouting the rules, Sean Bailey tweeted this piece of faux solidarity with Londoners suffering under the restrictions. He said, Tier 4 is tough on every Londoner. My family has had to cancel plans and I'm sure yours has too. It's also tough on the businesses that have had to close yet again. I'll be doing what I can to secure more support for London's businesses and help them through this difficult time. Pretty embarrassing for the Conservatives as a whole. Here was Transport Secretary Grant Shapps this morning. Utterly disgraceful. I've just told you about how I couldn't see my own dad for four months. I wasn't sure I'd see him again. To see that picture uh, makes me really, really angry. Dahlia, I want to bring you in on this. The, the Tories are saying this makes them very, very angry, even though you know uh, so many of their number now have been found to have done this kind of thing. Presumably a lot of them knew. 
How does this outrage compare to the other ones? This picture of Sean Bailey, is it, is it different from the other controversies we've seen or, or more of the same? Does, it, does this change the story in any way? No, it, it's, it's not any different. Sean Bailey is just, for whatever reason, very expendable or considered expendable, which is a shame for him because he has been clowning himself for years for the Tory party, only for them to shaft him like this, even though he actually did pretty well in the mayoral elections, given that I don't think the Tory party really gave him many resources or backed him. So it's quite amusing, really, to, to watch them just be like, no, we, we really don't care about you. Uh, I have my suspicions as to why that might be, but it's classically just being throwing someone under the bus because they feel able to, because he feels expendable. He clearly didn't do enough good networking to kind of keep get his loyalty entrenched in the party. But it's not any different from what happened in 10 Downing Street. It's not any different from the party that Allegra Stratton was, was laughing about. It's not any different from what I'm sure a lot of ministers have been doing. But it's so, it just, the thing that really, even worse than the photo itself, knowing what we were all going through when that happened, for me, the fake earnest tweets of being like, oh, I've had, me and my family have had to cancel plans. You know, I'm just one of you guys. Meanwhile, you know that he was just up to this a few days ago. Like, that's actually the bit that I find so, it makes me sick in my mouth. It's horrible. And it just, every time I read a tweet like that now from a minister, and to be honest, always, I've always just sort of been like, looked at it a little bit sideways because it just seems so rehearsed and like such a template thing to say. But it's just so gross to look at. It's so gross to watch. Sean Bailey has since apologized. So he's, he's put up the following tweet, Fred. I want to apologize unreservedly for attending a gathering held by some of my staff. So he's throwing people under the bus as well. In my campaign office last December, I gave a speech to my team to thank them for their efforts before leaving shortly afterwards. It was a serious error of judgment at a time when Londoners were making immense sacrifices to keep us all safe. And I regret it wholeheartedly. Unfortunately for Sean Bailey, we've seen the picture. Lots of the food was already eaten. People had been there for a while, Sean, hadn't they? That the evidence is for all of us to see. However long Sean Bailey stayed at that party, I don't think anyone should be. I'm not sure anyone will be either. Too sad to see him go. You may remember that he's the candidate who gave us such gems as this in 2010. Teenage girls might not get pregnant just to get a flat but they are a lot less careful because they know they will be looked, looked after on benefits. So people who are trying to do the right thing get pushed down the housing ladder, but nobody in our PC world will talk about it. Wow. I mean, I suppose he's trying to say, look, I'm, I'm, not, say I'm not saying people get pregnant to get council housing. I'm just saying they'll be more likely to because they know we'll look after them afterwards. During the mayoral election, when asked whether a homeless family in a B&B accommodation could really be expected to save £5,000 for a deposit on a flat, Bailey said the following, I don't think the £5,000 will be a problem. The mortgage application thing might be a bit tougher. They could save for it, yeah. Wow. Dahlia, Sean Bailey, will we miss him? Just clowning for years. And for what? To be thrown under the bus because of a beige-looking spread? Devastating for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. the, Tories, the Tories threw him under the bus. <laughs> He's trying to throw his staffers under the bus. The whole thing, I don't know who the staffers are going to throw under the bus. Maybe the caterers, I'm not sure. All very oh, depressing. All very Tory, top. actually. Yeah, yeah. A classic um, way to go. <laughs> we're going to close our discussion there. Dahlia, thank you for joining me this evening. And Thanks for having thank me. You, 
Nice oh, to you'll see be back you. on next Wednesday. You, I'm, I presume you won't be catching COVID again. You, you should be super immune now. Hopefully, hopefully my my it's time is over for a little while. <laughs> but thank you all for joining us as well. I want to go to a super chat from Matthew Carberry with a fiver. Sad to hear of the passing of Bell Hooks. Incredible voice for the left. We cannot have a meaningful revolution without humour, she wrote. Very tisky. Yes, Bell Hooks has sadly passed away at the age of 69. If you're not familiar with Bell Hooks, she was a feminist thinker, a political activist, and an author of more than 30 books dealing with the intersection of race, gender, class, and sexual oppression under capitalism. Hooks also held numerous highly distinguished academic positions across the USA. We leave you tonight with Hooks in her own words, discussing the relationship between love and the struggle against domination. And it is fascinating to me that to me, when I think about the defining movement for social justice that we had in our culture that rocked the world, it was a civil rights movement. The fact is there could be no end to apartheid in South Africa today had there not been a civil rights movement in the United States, whether we're talking about Aborigines in Australia or so many people around the world that look to the civil rights and freedom struggle here in the United States as an emblematic of justice. But the heart of that movement was an ethics of love. Um, when I began writing this book, I went back to Martin Luther King's Strength to Love, which was such a marvelous book. And, and he, he was one of the first leaders in our society to really talk about love, not as a sentimental emotion. You know, many of my readers, my bell hooks readers who are used to the hard hitting, you know, social feminist, exactly <laughs> have said to me, well, why love? And it's, I, it, you know, I, I, people have said to me, we hope we're not going to lose that, you know, that biting intervention. And I said, but to talk about love and the relationship between love and ending domination, whether we're talking about racism, homophobia, um, class elitism, because a lot of the book talks about greed and how greed has made us less loving as a nation. I mean, why do we think welfare is bad? We should be triumphing as a nation that we have the resources um, at our disposal you know, to provide for people in love. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.